Well, good morning, church. How y'all doing? Good. You guys are talkative this morning. It's always a blessing as a pastor to be able to come up and be in front of the congregation. We have a conversation together. Well, today we're going to be talking about a very hard passage. And as you do research and you look through the Gospels uh, and you compare the Gospels to actual modern-day preachers, you're going to find that a lot of pastors will skip the verse that we're going to look at because it's too hard. It's too hard to talk to their congregation about the danger of being a false disciple, but not Pastor Rick. Pastor Rick will put it in the schedule because we preach the full counsel of God's Word here, and I am excited and a little terrified of this, of this sermon. And uh, we're going we're gonna to get into it this morning. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be in chapter 7. We're going to be at verse 21. We're looking at two verses today. And within our text today, we're going to find the most terrifying four words that I believe that exist within the full counsel of God's 33,000 plus verses in the Bible. I never knew you. I never knew you. When you think about that statement in regards to our lives as followers and disciples, living your life for Christ and then coming to a certain point in your life where you are before God and thinking, hey, I'm in. And he says, no, you're not. He says, I never knew you. I have this good friend back in the East Coast that this was the passage that literally wrecked his life. He would call me up all the time and say, Nick, how do I know that I'm not just doing these things and then one day I'll be standing before God and he will say, I never knew you. He said, Nick, how, how do I know that I'm not a false disciple? Well, I believe as we gather here this morning under the counsel of God's word that we can know for sure of our salvation. And though this verse is tough, it's terrifying, I believe, though, it is a warning to believers to make sure that we actually know and understand what Jesus has done for us and what he is calling us to do in response to his great sacrifice. We're going to dive in this morning. I'm going to ask God to bless this time and pray, and then we'll jump in. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We've been worshiping you. And uh, God, now we're going to turn our attention to your word. Uh, God, I pray uh, that you would help us by the power of the Holy Spirit. Your word says that you dwell within the, the praises of your people. So, Father, we've been praising you, and now we know that you're with us and you're here. And we pray that you would help us to understand this. And this may come as a sharp rebuke. It may come as a big surprise this morning for some. And some who may not even know you may get saved today. So God, we are praying that you would have your way in our lives this morning. We give full authority over to you. We know that your name is powerful and your word is sharp. And we know that your word always does its intended purpose. So God, as we share this this morning, we pray that that would be fulfilled in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we find ourselves in the scriptures today coming to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, in, in the previous chapter or previous chapters, in, in, in Matthew 4, Jesus calls his disciples. He calls his apostles, and he's about to begin his, his journey. And then he heals someone, and then he comes to this mountain, 
And he's on the mountain, and the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law are around. And what Jesus does is he calls his disciples, those who he is asked to be on mission with, to come close. And he sits down on this mount, and the disciples are at his feet. And over the course of this first sermon, we know that this first sermon is kind of like the catalyst to the mission. It's kind of like the war room plan. It's kind of gathering his people together, his, his group that he loves, and he's saying, okay, these things are going to take place. This is what are some of the teaching that is going to happen. And very soon, we're coming to a place at the end of the sermon, Jesus is actually going to get up in the next few hours. If we were with him today listening, and we're at this moment, Jesus is actually going to get up with his disciples, and they're going to go and execute everything he has taught over the next three and a half years. And we come to a place in the scriptures where the, the disciples are now gathered at his feet. And he's been talking to them about all kinds of things. About how to live and who is blessed and who is cursed and oaths and talking about adultery and hating your brother. He's been talking about to, to be on the lookout for certain things and certain types of people. And Pastor Mark has shared with us uh, about false disciples even last week. We know of broad roads and, and narrow gates and, and bad fruit and good fruit. And Jesus is now turning his attention to disciples. So Jesus wants us to know, he wants his disciples to know and like really know for sure that there is a broad road that leads to destruction. And we need to be certain that we're not on it. We need to know and know for sure that there are false prophets masquerading as disciples and leaders of the church who are trying to gather people around and to do a to or preach a mission that is, is not Jesus's. So we need to be certain that we're not following those people. And the church is really good. Actually, pastors are really good about bringing, bringing that to light, that we need to be watching for false, false leaders and false preachers and false prophets. Uh, that sermon is preached a ton. I'm probably, uh, I'm sure that as you sat under Ma Pastor Mark's counsel last week, you knew, you knew what he was talking about that we need to look for false teachers and what that means. But today, Jesus turns his attention to us. As disciples of Christ who are coming after him, we need to, be, we need to know that false disciples do exist and we personally need to make sure that we're not one of them. So we're gonna dive in and we're gonna exegete this passage together. We're gonna look at it together, look at some of the statements and then really kind of think about what our life is like before the cross of Christ. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 7, 21. I'm going to read this together with you, and then we'll look at that. So Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name, did we not drive out demons? And in your name, did we not perform many miracles? Then I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. In this next section, our Lord proceeds to show us the same thing he has addressed to the false prophets, but now he turns the table and he says to the, his disciples, and for us, there is a terrible danger of self-deception and self-delusion that can take place. 
See, the whole Sermon on the Mount has been based on the warning of self-declared righteousness. We've been talking about this every single week. For the last 15 weeks, our key verse of Matthew 5.20 is, For I tell you the truth, unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, Jesus is saying you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So now we have come to a point in the sermon where Jesus is sitting and teaching, but he is plainly stating what has happened, what is going to come. He's not using illustrations. There are no parables, hyperboles, or analogies or comparisons anymore. And he's coming right out, and he says directly to them, as they're listening and looking up at him, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. One thing that we need to know for sure, that nothing prevails in the presence of God but true righteousness. True holiness, and without true holiness, we know that the scriptures say that no man or no woman shall see the Lord. And it's very important for us to know and understand that if our theology of of the doctrine of justification by faith does not include holiness or a pursuit towards holiness, there is a great delusion taking place in our lives. Not only are we saved, but we're saved with a purpose, and we're, served to, we're saved to be on mission. And the foundational truth that Jesus is teaching here is that self-deception regarding the soul and its relationship with God is generally due to our reliance on the false evidences of salvation. We're going to talk about those this morning. So people believe that they're saved, but they're not. They're doing things that would allude to being saved, but they're not at all. And Jesus is showing us here in the passage that man can get really far in the Christian church community, but just as well altogether be wrong and reprobate and damned. How can that be so? How can you be in the Christian church and doing the Christian thing and fitting in and, and rising up in your, self, in your sanctification, but also at the same time be so far from the Lord that you're actually damned to hell? That's the question we're going to f- figure out this morning. This is certainly the most astounding statement to be found in the Scriptures. So we're going to take some time to look at these statements and examples Jesus gives about false disciples and also to answer the question, how can we know if we are truly a disciple of Christ? So let's look at that first statement together. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So the first piece of false evidence on which some people tend to rest is actually correct doctrine. For it is only by our confession that Jesus is Lord that man can, be see, man can be saved. We know this because in Acts 2.21, it says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But here we have Jesus saying that those who say to me, Lord, Lord, will not be saved. This is confusing. How can this be so? How is it that the free gift of salvation is given to those who call on the name of the Lord, 
But those who call in the name of the Lord are actually not welcomed into the kingdom of heaven by Jesus himself, who has been given all authority in heaven and earth to make that decision. Well, the truth is, the answer lies not in an oral expression of theology, but in the belief of the words that you're saying that bring a person from spiritually dead to spiritually alive in Christ. So what Jesus is saying that people actually can repeat orthodoxy. People can use their words in front of people and not mean what they say, not believe in them, not actually have those words be the center of their life so that things actually change. They can associate, people can associate with the right people, learn the right phrases, They even can quote the Holy Scriptures. They can say, Lord, 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 but in reality, they have no real relationship with the Lord of glory. You may say Jesus is Lord and you may quote Scripture. You may be even sharp in reformed doctrine. But if you fail to do the will of the Father, you, may not, you might not even know Jesus. You can squ- quote scripture. Maybe here this morning you have, you've taken the, the Bible memorization course that Calvary offers and you're able to quote, me- quote m- scripture from memory, but you have no heart at all to apply it, to apply that scripture to your own life. You might be a false disciple. If you speak the truth in public and forego truth in private, you might be a false disciple. I, f- I feel like Jock's, Jeff Foxworthy. You might be a redneck. Like, you might be a false disciple. Because it is not enough just to, to know truth, but you have to know truth and act upon that truth and pursue the Father's will. I can give you two examples of this in the Bible. In the beginning, when I was talking about the disciples are gathering at the feet of Jesus, he's got these 12 disciples there. And very soon, they're going to get up and they're going to start implementing the things that God, Jesus has been teaching them. And they're going to act that out as they go through various towns, preaching and teaching the kingdom of God. At the feet of Jesus is Judas. Judas was called by Jesus. He was asked to follow him. He was listening to everything that was being said in the sermon. And he's looking most likely he's there looking up at Jesus. And we know that there's this moment in Matthew 16, same book, later on, same author, talking about this. In Matthew 16, Jesus comes along and he's asking the guys, who do the people say I am? And he goes through that and then he turns to them and he says, who do you think I am? And this is the big moment of Peter. Peter stands up and he says, you are the son of God. Judas would have been a part of that moment. Jesus is looking at his disciples. Most likely, Judas is looking at Jesus and agreeing with what Peter is saying based on the evidence, because this is later, this is not, this is not now. This, they're at the feet of Jesus. They've only seen a healing. A couple things have been done. There's been some preaching done. But the, the, big, the big mission hasn't started But back, like at Matthew 16, when this takes place, Judas would have seen all these things. He would have seen Jesus asleep in the boat when the boat was going to go down, and Jesus gets up and rebukes the storm. He would have seen Peter walk on water. He would have seen Lazarus raised from the dead, the little boy raised from the dead. He would have seen that Jesus had the power. 
to overcome death, to heal leprosy, to do all these amazing things. And when Paul says, or Peter says that you were the son of God, most likely Judas would have been there nodding. He knew Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God in the flesh, and he, and he betrayed the son of man with a kiss. He was in the presence of Jesus. He was doing everything that he could, he knew, like that displayed that he was a disciple. But in the end, he was not. Judas knew what to say, but he failed to believe. That's the first example. Second example I'll give from the scriptures is the demonic. I don't know what your theo- how your theology holds uh, about the demonic, but in, in my teaching or in my, my theology and my learning, I believe in demons. I believe that we do not fight against flesh and blood and we're out to get each other all the time, but it's, there is powers and principalities that have been set up against us The Bible speaks about demonology, and often we find Jesus talking to these demons. And in the same chapter, chapter Matthew 8, just the next one over, so this is probably three hours maybe after the sermon on the mount, they get up, and Jesus runs in and has a conversation with a demon. And he says, the demon says, and behold, they cried out loud, so it wasn't just one demon, it must have been multiple ones, what have you to do with us? And look at the statement. O son of God. So these demons know the rightful position of Jesus, that he is the son of God. Have you come here to torment us before the time? The disciples know and understand their position, or the demons know and understand their position. They know that the son of God has all authority, and they even know that they are going to be tormented and that there is a time. So they are well aware of what's going on with Jesus. And they do not believe in him. They don't, not, they, don't, they don't take the scriptures to heart and change their actions. The demons know and recognize Jesus as the son of God. They know his power and authority, but they do not believe. We also get a teaching in James, the half-brother of Jesus in chapter 2. And he's speaking to the church and he says, you believe there is one God. It's kind of like a backhanded statement. Good for you. You believe that there is one God. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So what we can take from this is that there is a danger of being content with an intellectual assent to the truth, to know about God, but not be committed to God. And some have committed to a community. That's the danger of some of this. Some have committed to a community of people that accept them But the danger is God has not accepted them because they do not know God or believe in him truly. They may know and understand what he offers, but they haven't fully repented and turned their life over to Jesus and they're not giving their life over to Jesus each and every day. As a young adults pastor, I get to see 18 to 40-ish in my demographic. And there's a movement that is happening right now. You probably know and see of it if you're, if you're following along with some of the stuff that's happening in culture. Uh, and there's a group of, of people that are coming out, seems like on a regular basis, and they're called deconstructors. They're these people that are deconstructing their faith. They're, they're looking for any avenue to get a platform to talk about how the church has failed them. It's a whole new movement of people sharing how they come to know 
their own truth about faith and what they once believed in. They share about how they are walking away from God and the church and the scriptures because it, it has let them down. They've gone to church and they've listened and they've joined up and they've, they've served, but they're not truly seeing the fruit that they were promised. And I try to listen to, to as many as these deconstructors as I can, um, just kind of hear their hearts, what's going on. Is there something that, is there anything in our ministries that we are, are falling short of that we can correct? And, and it's often very sad to listen to some of these things, some of these testimonies. But I listen to these people and I hear them not talking of salvation, but about a conversion to a community, not a conversion to Christ. And often what you hear is they're saying how the community has let them down and how the pastor has let them down, and how the scriptures they thought, which were taught in a certain way, were going to produce a certain outcome for their life, so they were all in. But as they continue to look at the community, and they look at the pastor, and they look at the church, they, they believe that God is falling short. And they say, we're done with our faith. But often when I listen to these deconstructors talk, they didn't have faith. They didn't have faith in the real Jesus Christ. They put their faith in a community. They put their faith in a, a, broken, a broken system that needs Jesus each and every day. If you come to church and you're putting all your hope in a man or a pastor, that's scary. You're putting your hope in a community. You're, getting your, you're feeling good about your position with God because you serve, but you don't really know God and behind closed doors you don't serve God. This is a scary wake-up moment. You might not be saved. Jesus declares the answer for us in the second half of the verse. He says, only those who do the will of my Father in heaven, those are the people that will enter the kingdom of God. Those who truly know God and obey God. True disciples are concerned. This is one of the markers of a true disciple. True disciples are concerned about the will of the Father. What does God say? What does he want me to do? What does he want me to do now? What does he want me to do tomorrow? True disciples care about how the Father has plans for them, and they are actually excited and joyful to fulfill the plans of God. It goes back to the fruit of the prophets that Pastor Mark was teaching us about last week. There's good fruit and there's bad fruit. Disciples have fruit too. And what we're seeing right here in this first example of not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven is this, that knowledge is good, but it's not enough. It is not enough. Because an unregenerated man or woman may accept the scriptural teachings as a kind of philosophy or dogma or an abstract truth. And you actually can believe in what I'm saying, but not believe it in such a way that your life completely changes. And if you look at church history, the Puritans, these, these kind of reformed dudes, they wrote some great stuff. The Puritans spoke and wrote not just chapters, but whole volumes on something called the false peace that is found within the Christian movement. People trusting their faith or trusting the, their faith in a dogma, a set of beliefs, 
a set of rules, instead of trusting Christ as their Savior, their guide, their true Lord, people trusting their belief without actually becoming regenerated. This is actually a scary thought for us that we could be coming in here each and every week and praising the Lord and you may not have been converted to Christ but you've been converted to a community. And when that community starts to let you down, you get angry with the church and you bail. I didn't get my way. I don't like the direction. I don't like what they're doing. I'm not going to start, I'm not serving anymore. These are simple signs that you may not have a full conversion to Christ because the bride of Christ is the church and we are made of many parts and each of us have given a gift and we're given a gift to be activated in the church. But we use our gifts not so that we can pat each other on the back and high five each other. Good job, Pastor Steve, lead this morning. You're the man. Pastor Steve is the man. But Pastor Steve is the man because he loves the Lord Jesus. We need to be doing things and exercising our gifts within the body of Christ onto God. Work as if you work onto God, not for the praise of man. So knowledge is not enough. But do you know and do you obey? As we continue through our scripture, we're going to see that it's not just knowledge but you actually have to be on guard personally. So this is not, remember a month ago I talked about the plank, planking your eye. This is not the moment where you're like, you have to kind of be on guard for Jesus again, come to the front and search everybody's life so you can come tell the pastor. It's not what I'm saying. But you have to be on guard personally because you may have a false zeal for God. And we see this in the scripture. It's not just knowledge either. You have to be on guard for zeal and fervor towards the Lord as well because they too can be false indicators. As we look at our scripture, the second possibility we see here is that false disciples are not, may not just be, may not fail to believe or trust in the truth, but they actually can be zealous and fervent for the Lord. See, Jesus quotes people saying, Lord, Lord, there's a second Lord added on which conveys emotion. And Jesus kind of talks to us about, about that with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They say these, they, they use these lofty words and, and they want to impress God. And we see this moment where these people are coming and they're saying, Lord, Lord, like they're an extra Lord to add emotion to, to, to their belief. Like, Lord, Lord, how many of you have ever said, Lord, Lord? We talk about the Lord Jesus, but the second Lord, because they are displaying the great love for God, and we can see that too today in, in, our, in our movements, this charismatic movement of display that can be found on a Sunday morning. And I'm not talking about a denomination when I say charismatic. I'm not talking about a denomination, but I'm actually talking about a false demonstration. See, a person can be moved to tears when they hear a beautiful song. They shout amen when the pastor says a familiar point. They show stern disapproval when sin is revealed in the lives of a brother or sister. And there can be great zeal or fervor displayed 
but they don't repent of their own sin. Behind closed doors, their life is a mess before Christ. They don't seek the Spirit to search their own life and they throw off all accountability of their own actions before Christ. In public, very Christ-like. In private, very self-devoted. Last week, I saw an Instagram a reel of a, of, a, a pass, of a church, and it kind of opened up with a panning of the amazing worship team like ours, and it showed like the worship was so amazing, and it's kind of panning across the stage, so it's kind of like over where Lisa is, and it's kind of going over here, and on this side, there's a, you can tell where Alexis is, Alexa, there's a pastor, and there's a lady that's standing beside the pastor, so it kind of scans over Intense worship moment. It's amazing. Pastor's over there. He's got his headset on. You can tell it's the pastor. He's holding his Bible. And there's this girl, like two steps ahead of him, hands in the air, which is beautiful, hands in the air, screaming, jumping, dancing. At one point, it shows she's twirling. I was like, wow, that girl loves Jesus. Bronwyn, twirl with me. Let's do it. And then the next scene, it shows the pastor on the stage, and he's a church. There's a spirit in here today. Church, I got to tell you, there is a spirit in here today, the spirit of suicide. I'm not letting you go. Ushers, get to the doors. I'm not letting you go, because we're dealing today with the spirit of suicide in this room. So you're going to skip your lunch, because we're dealing with it, until the person who puts their hand up, guess who put their hand up? And he actually calls her out. He says, you? You're the one? I was just worshiping with you. You were spitting and, and, and throwing your hands in the air and showing displays of emotion, but you want to take your life? And then it just cuts off. There's no ending. We don't know what happened. I don't know if they got lunch. <laughs> but one writer shared this, nothing is more dangerous than to rely upon correct belief and a fervor spirit and to assume that as long as you believe the right things and are zealous and keen and active concerning them, then you are therefore, out of necessity, a Christian. You can fake worshiping the Lord. It's not just knowledge, and it's not just emotion. And as we move through this passage, Jesus actually includes works. Look at this. According to the Lord, a man may perform these good works and still be outside the kingdom of heaven. The first one we see is a reminder, or it's a reminder of a, a person or a group of people coming to Jesus saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Now, prophecy is to be able to give a spiritual message, to speak on behalf of God. In the Old Testament, God used prophets to speak his will and, and, and his plans. And in the New Testament, depending on what you believe about prophecy, 
if you believe prophecy is still being given, but I would, I would say that prophecy is not, I'm not out here giving prophecy, but prophecy can also be preaching. It can be giving a spiritual message to speak on behalf of God. And Jesus says on that day, that day which is judgment day, people will come to me and say, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not told the message to the people? Have we not did these things, told this truth in your name, God? And he will look at them and he will say, depart from me, you evildoer. That is a a scary moment for us. Is it possible for man to preach correct doctrine in the name of Christ, yet him himself be outside the kingdom of God? Is it correct? Could it be even possible that you're a Sunday school teacher, a DC leader, a children's worker, a parent, a husband, a wife, and you're gathering people around and you're opening up God's word and you're expressing the truth to these people, but you yourself are not saved? The Lord says it is possible. Paul is teaching the Philippian church and in 1 Philippians 1.15, he says this. He says, it is true that some preach Christ. They preach Christ out of envy and rivalry. People can preach Christ with wrong motives. People can share the message of Jesus. They can share truth and not believe in that truth. Do you know that I had, I've been in ministry as a pastor for 19 years. Out of those 19 years, I met two pastors that got saved in the middle of their ministry. Two pastors that got saved in the middle of their ministry. Like full ministry, preaching every Sunday, and then has a conversation because some stuff happens in their life and actually are converted. This is a wake-up and a warning call to the church that we need to know Christ and we need to follow the will of the Father because a person can give hope and not possess the very hope that can save their life. We see the repetition of in your name. Second time, in your name, did we not cast out demons? Is it possible to perform the great acts and still not be part of the kingdom of God? I would say yes, it shows this. As we look at Luke 10, 17, we would see that there was this moment where Jesus called his disciples and now there's more. There's 72 now. And he sends them out to preach the good news and to rebuke the demons. And they come back and they're rejoicing and they're excited and they're, they're, they're with this testimony that... God, Jesus, even the demons listen to us in your name. Judas would have been a part of that, uh, that party that went out. He would have came back. He would have saw the power of in your name. See, the Lord Jesus may give power over demand to be able to do these miracles, but that miraculous power does not equate to personal salvation. You may be able to do great acts in the name of the Lord using your talents, but that doesn't mean... You're saved. What about great signs and wonders? Surely those who do such things have to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. That has to be right, right, church? 
Not, not so. Even those who are able to accomplish such worship, wonderful things in the name of Christ may be outside of the kingdom of God. I'll give you a couple examples. I hate these examples. I wish I wasn't saying this. But amazing leaders and pastors may be used, out, used by God to build his church, faithfully preaching the word of God each and every week. And not be saved. Worship leaders who bring congregations to their knees and are able to move hearts and touch souls by their talent. And on the stage, it's all about Jesus. Off the stage, it's give or take. Even great mission organizations that help build churches and do humanitarian work, they give to the poor. Leaders of schools, they could be outside the will of the Father. We see an example of this in the battle of the people, God's people in Egypt. The magicians of Egypt matched many of the signs, wonders, and plagues performed by Moses and Aaron. Will we say that these magicians who were able to do such astonishing feats were of God, for God, and with God? Certainly not. We would not say that. The terrifying conclusion is that you may be able to point to significant events and moments, even actual healings that take place, even in your life or in your family or in your church, and you may not know the Father. Ancient church father Cyril of Alexander instructs his church like this. There may be some who in the beginning believe rightly and as sedaciously labored at virtue and virtue being behavior that is showing moral value. They may have even worked miracles and prophesied and casted out demons and yet later are found turned upside to evil, to self-assertive deception and desire. And of these, Jesus remarks, I never knew you. Cyril rightly emphasizes that self-assertive deception and desire characterizes false disciples because they deceive themselves and other believers and, the desire, and desire the attention they will receive from their spectacular displays. And it is no different today. Many churches and congregations fall prey to such zealous displays only to be tested, to be found that they have built their life on a false foundation. And next week we're going to talk about that. Building your life on the right foundation. Are you wise? An oral confession that Jesus is Lord can mask an unrepented heart. Remember that day. I've said it before. Disciples come. Jesus, he's teaching. Jesus, your mother and brother and sisters are outside. And he looks around and he says, my mother and my brother and my sisters and anyone who is family to me are those who hear the word of God and do it. So the final proof of any ministry is whether it promotes obedience to the Father's will. God knows who he loves. Those people who are singly-mindedly believing in him and they do things to please him. And we as disciples, as we gather, we need to check our hearts and we need to check our motives because I believe God in the flesh 
The God-man, he's at the the mount right now with his disciples and he's teaching them. Not as as a terrifying, he's not there to terrify them. He's there to warn them. That there are wide gates and there are bad prophets, or there's bad fruit, there's false prophets, and yes, there are even false disciples. They all exist. Many make false professions of faith and deceive themselves into thinking they belong to Jesus, but they truly have never repented and turned from their sin. To repent means to turn from, to not go back, to not indulge, to not just nibble a little. It means to cut off and go towards God. Turn from your sin. Put your trust in Christ and embrace him in your heart. Be sure today that you enter through the narrow gate. You are following those who produce good fruit and that you do know the will of the Father and you are actively pursuing obedience in Christ. Do not let seasons go by with sin in your life. Have nothing. Just don't participate have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Because on that day, we will stand before Jesus and you will be either covered in righteousness, given to you by Christ himself, or you will be covered in false righteousness. Make sure you know Jesus and that Jesus knows you. I think the hymn writer said it this way the best. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Lord, will you help us this morning? This is an intense teaching for us. I don't even think that the disciples who were sitting at your feet understood this. But we see later on in the scriptures, you teaching about sheeps and goats and separating one from another. And the parable is acted out and the people cry out once again. We knew you, Jesus. Look at what we did for you. And he says, I never knew you. God, we know that there's so much temptation in this world. And it's easy for us to indulge. But God, your word says, if you turn to me and come to me, me, if you confess your sins, if you turn from them, you obey the Father's will, that you will forgive our sins and that you will hold us close. God, I don't believe that this message is for the, for the whole church. I believe that there are many, many, many people in here that truly know you. They say, Lord, we know you. We love you. We live for you. We want to do the things. We joyfully submit to you. But Jesus, there could be some 
So I pray by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would come and minister now. And I thank you for your free gift of salvation that we can truly, if we with an honest heart, not playing games, turn to you. You are faithful and just. You will forgive us of those sins and you will set us on the right path through the narrow gate, on the narrow road that leads to life everlasting. And that's available for any person here today, regardless of their position or their status within the church. If they truly don't know you, call them forth in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, church, how should we personally respond to this message today? I would say, church, let this be a press-in season in your life. What do I mean by a press-in season? I would say press into the things of God. Make sure you're testing your own heart and seeking the Father's will in everything that you do. Test your heart and your motives and truly act upon what you believe in. Trust in the Lord and act upon the truth. Though this passage may be terrifying, I believe it is also liberating because we can know in our hearts that we are saved and we can have the assurance of our salvation because we know that Jesus did die for us and we are living on mission for him in everything that we do. Will we fall short of the glory of God? Yes. Will we still sin? Yes. Will we become sin- sinless? No, but we will sinless, sinless as we move towards God. And this season right now is a pressing season. So come to church, make no excuse. Get into a DC group where other people can be accountable for your life. Do the things that honor the Lord. He says, not everybody will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of the Father who is in heaven. And we have a great opportunity together as the church to do that. So let's not waste any time. It's time to pick up the cross. The cross of Calvary, which our Savior died for our sins so that we may live and live an abundant life even now with Christ and go forward towards holiness. So I say, may the Lord bless you and keep you and may his face, may he cause his face to shine upon you in Jesus' name. For one day we will stand before God and on that day, those who know him will hear, come, you who are blessed into my Father's home, come. What a beautiful day that will be for us who know Christ and know what he has done for us. We love you. We hope you have a great day. We hope you reflect upon this. And if you have any questions, and if you even have something in your heart and you know that you're not living right and you want to speak to one of your pastors, you can come right up to us and we'll just pray for you. We'll deal with it right now, today, in the name of the Lord. That's how amazing our God is. We don't have to put things off. There's no procrastination in the kingdom of God. He says, deal with it today. So we'll meet you up front and the Lord will meet with you too. In Jesus' name, have a great day. God bless you.